I'd like to start by giving you some feedback that I received after my message, The Green New Covenant, part two of this series that we did at Spark, uh, that will help frame this particular podcast installment, Creation Care, part two. The first comment that I got was, so are we all just doomed? It was a somewhat hilarious um, and ironic expression of the paralysis that I talked about in my message which made me wonder, how effective was I really at communicating my hope for living an integrated life as a response to paralysis? One of the main points of my talk that particular Sunday. Another sparker shared with me his vacation to Alaska and seeing the beauty of the nature up there. He talked about seeing the glaciers, and the tour guide pointed out to the group do you see that mountain over there? Do you see how high that mountain goes? And he pointed up the side of the mountain and he said, see that point way up there? That's where the glacier used to be 10 years ago. And as he was sharing this with me, you could see the astonishment on his face as someone who just got struck with how stark and how striking it is just how far the glaciers have melted and how how majestic the glacier was, but how much more it was 10 years ago. In this installment, I want to talk about something that I'm calling the great hurdle, which is our personal psychologies. Um, but it is also about the diverse groups of people that have various thoughts, opinions, biases, stereotypes, experiences when it comes to climate change. There are still people who are hostile, there are others who are paralyzed, and some are anxious that we're not doing enough. And And I will say that I've been taken back a bit at how challenging this conversation is. I, I mentioned before that the physics is true, so there's no debate about the physics, but there is huge debate and discussion as to how we communicate the truth of climate change to a population that either doesn't believe it or believes the very worst of it. If we're going to make progress on the physics of climate change, we're going to need to make progress on the psychology of climate change. And that means asking, how do we have productive conversations about this when you don't know what the other person believes, and maybe you don't even know what you believe about it? I'm going to admit up front that what I'm about to share with you is still very much in process within my own mind. I'm still quite uncertain what I really think about all these different psychological strategies. So I hope that you'll grant me some grace, but I also hope that you'll help me think better about it. Perhaps you have some thoughts or reflections about the experiences that you've had in talking about climate change. I know many of you have studied psychology or communication theory, and those insights are really helpful as well. So let's talk about the great hurdle and let's do our best to make our first attempt at leaping over it. In Wallace Wells's book on climate change, The Uninhabitable Earth, he spends the first portion of the book on the various scenarios of warming, such as hunger, disasters, diseases, and unbreathable air. And these headings are really depressing when you read them all in a row. In an interview that I saw with him, he was asked if that kind of approach was effective or a good way to talk about climate change. Naming these things seems 
more like fear-mongering and can even turn some people off from caring about it altogether because it can sound too fantastical to be real. His response was that this issue is so big that we need a variety of ways to talk about it and different storytelling mechanisms and that each of those have their place. There really is no one right way to talk about it. I think he's on to something there. And I think if I admit, I initially have gravitated toward the sound the alarm approach, um, simply because of the data and the urgency that's needed. This approach is also in line with much of what I've been reading. And as you all know, you get conditioned by what you saturate yourself in. However, I think David Wallace Wells is right in that there is no one right way to talk about this. And there may be other ways that we can consider other than the sound the alarm approach. I'd like to share with you two approaches that I have come to believe may be the most important. The first is the I hear you, I'm with you approach. Now, this way of talking about climate change is specifically for people who are perhaps skeptical or have serious concerns about what climate change might mean. This approach helps the other person first know and most importantly feel that you are concerned about the same things that they are concerned about. We often talk about finding common ground in order to have a productive discussion. And when we think about common ground, we usually think about facts or data or the things that we can, we must agree upon. But sometimes what we're talking about when we're talking about common ground is we're talking about convictions, common feelings, and maybe even common identities. That may be more of what we're talking about when we're talking about common ground. I have found this is effective with someone who is really concerned about the social or economic consequences of the massive Herculean effort that shifting our energy sector away from fossil fuels is going to take. I know many are concerned about jobs. They're concerned about economic viability. Uh, some people who are Christians are really concerned about what this means for the Bible. Many are concerned that people are just going to make a lot of money off of these initiatives, take advantage of all these you know, social trends or whatever. And to these people, we may consider saying, I'm concerned too. Let's work together to make sure that that doesn't happen. To the person who says, we're all doomed, we can say, I totally see how you feel that way. That makes complete sense. And then once we establish that ground, then we can share how there are possible ways through all of this without the devastation of somebody reaping billions of dollars off of the backs of working people or without the apocalyptic destruction of the earth. I've been working hard lately at listening carefully, not to what people are saying, but what people are actually feeling, and then doing my best to connect with what they feel. This is one step beyond the practice of active listening, where you repeat what someone said to you in your own words so that you can feel that you've heard them. This kind of listening is about getting to what I've been calling the thing behind the thing. What is the feeling behind the words that they are saying? What are the emotions behind the rationale that they are saying? It is then and only then that we can have productive conversations as we find common ground on who we are and what we care about and what concerns us 
and what fears emerge from the unknown. And then we can start talking about facts and data and science and physics. The second approach is, I believe, the more hopeful approach. In part three of the book, The Uninhabitable Earth, David Wallace Wells has a section called The Climate Kaleidoscope, and in it he writes this, It should be no great prize to be right about the end of the world, but humans have told those stories incessantly across millennia, the lessons shifting with each imagined Armageddon. You'd think that a culture woven through with intimations of apocalypse would know how to receive news of environmental alarm. But instead, we have responded to scientists channeling the planet's cries for mercy as though they were simply crying wolf. Today, the movies may be millenarian, but when it comes to contemplating real-world warming dangers, we suffer from an incredible failure of imagination. This is climate's kaleidoscope. We can be mesmerized by the threat directly in front of us without ever perceiving it clearly. I think he's on to something when he used the word imagination. And for those who are followers of Jesus, there is actually a long tradition of imagination. We imagined the promised land, a paradise, a time when there is no more crying, no more tears, the coming together of heaven and earth in the world to come. We imagine what people could become through the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit. We imagine God's kingdom being established, being established here on earth as it is in heaven. We use our imaginations when we think about justice, the bringing and restoring of shalom on this earth. Imagination is actually one of the key components of what motivates Christians to live into the way of Jesus. It is to imagine what kind of life is coming and becoming through the people of God as we live out the teachings that we find in our faith. Applied to climate change, I think this kind of imagination is really important. David Wallace Wells may have been talking about seeing clearly the direness of climate change, but I'm going to interpret his words as being also about seeing the opportunity and the great possibilities of our future. This is exactly what the sparker who told me about his trip to Alaska was talking about when seeing the glacier and where the glacier was. It was using the kind of imagination about where it used to be and imagining what it could become again. That was so moving and motivating. Using that kind of imagination, we can clearly see the data in front of us that climate change is not something we will have to face in the future. It's happening right now, and it's serious, serious enough to warrant our attention. But instead of just shouting doom and gloom and direness and apocalypse, we can imagine an amazingly hopeful, beautiful, sustainable, and better future. One of the books I'll be talking about later is Drawdown, one of the most comprehensive books out there on the technologies and methodologies for drawing down CO2 emissions. It is an incredibly amazing book as it highlights the work that is being done by many people and many technologies that will soon become readily available and be deployed that will go a long way toward building a renewable and sustainable future. And it highlights the money we save and most importantly, the lives we save and the lives that become better as a result of deploying such strategies. So my friends, speaking truthfully about the data is important, but it is also important to empathize with others 
and cast an amazing picture of a beautiful future that is coming. It is my sense that these two strategies are an important combination for overcoming the great hurdle of our psychologies when it comes to climate change so that we can have more and better productive conversations. Next week, we're going to tackle the Bible and hopefully provide some contexts for the passages that are frequently used to discuss climate change.